Here we are, November the 16th, 2014, lecture discussion number 176 on the Book of Romans. And since last week uh, was a lecture 175, duh, right? Uh, that primarily centered on the bridesmaids of Matthew 25, the five foolish and the five wise virgins of that parable. Today's going to follow up on uh, Jeremiah 13, at least towards the end of it. Of today it will, at least, I hope. The two parables of Jeremiah 13, I think, um, must fit in here or do belong with any discussion on Matthew 24, 45 through 25, 30. And that's the plan. The plan is to uh, understand as much as possible and the meanings of the uh, talents and the abilities, if you will. Uh, what are the talents and what are the abilities? That's what we're doing. And I know I'm taking a long time because it deserves a long time. It's Talents are given, uh, talents of gold are given by Christ on the basis of ability. And there's an accountability element there. And that is in the third parable of the three parables of Matthew 24, 45 through 25, 30. And uh, to recap a little bit, uh, for those who may have missed and for those who were doing the word search puzzle in the bulletin, the three parables of Matthew 24, 45 through 25, 30 have many components in common. Those three parables are very, very interconnected, intertwined. Uh, I have wisdom contrasted with wickedness in all three of them. Uh, obviously, I have delay and departure in all three of them. There's a de delay-departure component. Uh, I, there's accountability. If you remember the accountability that is discussed, I have, I have cut in two. The wicked slave of the first parable is cut in two. There's a sudden catching, if you will, that comes and he is cut in two. The door is shut on the five wicked, notice how I say that, the five wicked virgins. I don't call them foolish every time because I have wickedness in the first parable, wickedness in the second parable. Obviously, if the three are a totality, I will have wickedness in the second parable. So I make sure that I do that. And then, of course, I have cast into darkness, into utter, utter darkness. Okay, so there's my accountability. All three of those parables have those components. And the first parable began with food as a symbol. If you remember, the wise, the faithful servants, they took food and they fed the, the household or they fed others. And so keep in mind that each one of them has that kind of element in it, the first one being food. When the master returns, the master found the good and faithful servant feeding the household, giving them food in due season. The wicked servant then did not give food. What did he do instead? Do you remember? I hope you do. I will help you. He started beating and killing and enslaving the household, his fellow servants. And then when the master comes, again, the suddenness that he comes that is in all three parable, he cuts him in two. Uh, whenever I see someone cut in two in the Bible, who do I think it is? Who is suddenly cut in two? That's correct. It's an Antichrist reference. Very good. So, uh, obviously, that, that element makes me wonder if uh, the wicked slave in parable number one is the Antichrist. Uh, we'll have to deal with that. 
For now, just think about the giving of food and use it in a general sense. The giving of food is therefore a labor that God judges as good as wise. And the killing, obviously, the starving, the hoarding, the torturing, the enslaving, that is wickedness. The parable begins with this question, if you remember. Who then is a faithful, wise servant? Who is the one that is giving food? Uh, Make the application. Who says I don't do applicational sermons? Are you giving food, would be the question. Blessed is the one that God finds doing so, giving food. The food givers are blessed. What is food? What is it a symbol of? What is the food and who are the faithful and wise? The ten virgins also have a likewise symbol. What is it? It's oil. So the questions start to happen now. Does food equal oil? Is it the same, is the symbol the same meaning in each parable? What do you think? God is the one that wrote it. God is the one that gave it. What do you think? Five. I have, I have five wise virgins and five foolish virgins. The five wise, they have oil. They take oil. The five foolish have no oil. Take no oil. They take lamps. But they don't have any oil. And that seems to make no sense because you would be a normal person. You would take a lamp and you would want it to do what? Light. You're going into the darkness. I got a lamp. Uh, At least I'm going to go into an area that is going to be uh, overcome by darkness at some point. I'll have nighttime. And in that, there's no electricity, obviously, in that time frame. And so it's very, very dark. It's like all of Alaska now. Why would I take a lamp and not take any oil? We would think that would be silly. Well, they didn't think that way. And you have to begin to understand that. They take lamps, but they take no oil. That makes no sense necessarily for you or for me or for anyone at first reading. Who takes a lamp with no oil? Obviously, that's a key question. And you have to ask yourself, what's the lamp? What is the symbol of the lamp? And and what is the symbol of the oil? Or who is the symbol of the oil? And if who is the symbol of the oil, is it the same question applied to the food? Who is the symbol of the food? Okay, it should be noted that the bridegroom is returning when the five virgins or the ten virgins are out, or bridesmaids, whatever you wish, uh, are waiting for him and slumbering. But the bridegroom is returning, and it's necessary to determine if the bridegroom is coming with his who? Is he coming by himself, or is he coming with his bride? So do I have the bridegroom coming for the bride, or do I have the bridegroom returning with the bride? You have to decide that, because once you do, then that will help you understand what the oil is, And what the whole process is, because if it is the bridegroom coming with his bride, coming to the wedding feast after he has been gone for a seven, then what is it? What time does it occur in history? And if that's the case, then it's a sheep-goat context, isn't it? Does that make any sense? That's what comes next after the parables, by the way, is the sheep-goat separation. Are you a sheep? Are you a goat? Hopefully you've already figured out what step of the Hebrew betrothal ceremony this returning is. Okay, I would put the numbers, choices that you have up there, but I won't today. You can look it up. If you don't, if you don't know, I'll I'll put it up next week, maybe today. 
I, I wrote here, no, you won't. You don't have time. So I talked to myself on the yellow pad, just in case you're running. Anyway, I really do. It's written right there. Forgot that I did it. That's what's happening to me now. Uh, for today, just notice the relationship that must exist between the food and the oil. Ask again, are they the same or are they two parts of a whole? And if they're two parts of the whole, how many parts does the whole have? The whole has three parts. What's the next part? What's the next parable? What's the symbol in the last parable? It's the talent of gold, right? So I have three of these. Are they the same? So is it food equals oil equals talent or is it food so do I have equal, equal, or do I have plus, plus, and then equal? Does that make sense? Is it food is the same as oil, is the same as talent, so God just repeated the same symbols in the same parable over and over and over again? Or is it that each, each symbol is slightly different and they're additive? So I have food plus oil plus talent equals a whole. I would suggest that the latter is the most uh, correct. They are three parts. So to understand what the talent is, we're going to have to figure out what the oil is and what the food is and then figure out what the hole is. I hope that uh, helps you a little bit. The good and faithful in the last parable, the parable of the talent of gold, the good and faithful invest what Christ gives them and the wicked and lazy uh, hide it or bury it. The wicked uh, slave buried it. And ultimately, at the end of that talent, or, or I'm sorry, that parable, um, the accountability portion that is in all three of these, uh, the evil third slave with only one talent, and I shouldn't say only, that doesn't, that's a, incorrect, that has one talent, ultimately accuses God himself. He's in face to face with God in the accounting phase or the trial phase of that parable, and he says to God, you are the author of evil, and you are the one who is the or, from, from whom the origin of sin comes. You are the originator of all sin, and you are the author of evil. And Christ responds to him, as you know, with that fantastic implied answer, why then did you bury it if you knew, if you thought I was evil? The new is a, uh, is a rhetorical um, if you want to look at it as uh, implying that uh, the answer is no, that's how to read that. But Christ responds to that accusation with absolute forceful clarity. He is no such thing. He is not the author of evil. He is not the origin of sin. Uh, it is also wicked to say that he is. That's bad news for lots of churches. Every time I come into this, I find this doctrine expressed to me by someone, they always come from the same denominations. And they're positive that God is the author of evil. They're positive of it. He says clearly as he can in that parable in Matthew 25, 14 through 30, in the third parable of the three parables of Matthew there, that it is wicked to say that he is. It's not just wrong, it's evil. That's a bad spot to be in, on the wrong evil side. So now you ask the obvious question, right? The most obvious of the obvious questions. If God is never the source and never the, never the source and never the causation of sin and evil, then what is the origin of sin and evil? Because we got lots of it. Or who is the origin of it? How did it begin? And this again is why the one who buried the talent of gold that he received from Christ when this is why he brings up um, 
the confession of Adam, Genesis 3.10. He says word for word what Adam says in Genesis 3.10. He uses Adam's confession when he accuses Christ of being evil. Because it is an original sin issue in in both places. Genesis 3.10 through 17, that is where uh, we deal with original sin. It's the first trial of 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 mankind, if you want to think of it. And that is why the third slave in the parable of the talents uses that as an excuse. Uh, Remember uh, Romans 1.20 while we're here. It says uh, very clearly, all who suppress the truth will be without excuse. Remember that? Let's read it again, because it's a very, very important piece of Scripture in the New Testament to, uh, to always know. If you're going to know things, uh, this is one to know. I'll start at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. God is saying as clear as he can that there are men who will suppress the truth. That's their plan. That's burying the talent. That's a truth suppressor. Somebody who knows the truth, but hides it purposely. What's his motive? For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. In other words, they do it in evil. It's an evil act. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. There's no excuse. It'll say uh, down here in verse 23, Professing to be wise, or 22, professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like perishable man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. In other words, they that bury or they that hide, they that suppress the truth of the glory of God, they change that truth into the, to a lie. They change that, and that lie is this, that Christ is like He's just like sinful mankind subject to sin as well. You can extrapolate that out and see that it is also saying that uh, God is the origin of sin. So keep Romans 1 uh, in mind when you're reading Matthew 24, 45 through Matthew 25, 46, because uh, I think you'll recognize uh, the connection between them. By the way, it actually all starts, all of those parables start at uh, 2436. This is important to know with the word but. That tells you that Christ is changing subjects. And we'll get to that in the weeks to come. We won't do it today. I'll do it soon. And as you know, that means in a year or so, right? For now. I just want you to notice also this other characteristic that is in all of these these uh, three parables, and that is premeditation. If you thought when you were reading the parable of the ten virgins that the five foolish virgins were just 
airheaded blondes from totally awesome like California, then you're mistaken. That is not what's happened here. There was a high level, let me get the board out where we can all see it, high level of premeditation in all of them. In the evil slave that starts killing and beating people as soon as he says what he says. In the five virgins who got a lamp but decided to not take any oil. And the guy that immediately went to bury his talent of gold. Premeditation in all of them. And I alluded to premeditation last week when I discussed the meaning of the departure of Christ. This other element that's in all of them. The delay departure element, right? What is the meaning of that? Or either the departure or the delaying, or the time period during which God is not physically apparent. Remember, in all three parables, the master comes, the master gives something, an assignment, and he leaves. Now, in the virgins, he's, he's in the departure, he's returning from his departure, right? But all of them are there. There is no physical presence of God. And that, by the way, takes you back to where in the Bible? All kinds of places, but primarily Matthew 12 and 13. That is the, the rejection of Christ when he is physically in front of the nation of Israel based on the position that Israel has that he is in fact Satan and not God. That is the rejection of the Messiahship of Christ. It requires the physical presence of God in, and in front of a nation. You cannot commit the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. You are not a nation and Christ is not physically present in front of you um, as Messiah. So this physical presence is a key element here, for a lack of a better way to phrase it. That's a humanistic approach to it, right? So we asked last week, what is the purposes of Christ's departure? And one of the purposes of Christ's departure is to uh, provide mercy, provide an opportunity, if you will, for us. We're here because he departed. There's a time element. Another purpose, as Marie pointed out last week, and got an A, uh, it reveals things. It re- are we hearing lots of noise? Is that the heat system? Okay. We've never had heat in any of our buildings before, so this is an unusual thing for us, I know. I, I make that comment and I get uh, people from the Internet, what do you mean you've never had heat? How, how did you survive in Alaska without heat? Well, I shouldn't say we didn't have heat. We just had really low levels of heat. Um, and so we would all huddle in, in with our, some people had little portable fire systems at their feet, little coals and things. Others had propane. Most people just bundled up in parkas. And we'd slow the sermons down for calisthenics about halfway through. All of that. That They think that's a joke, and it, it's a little bit of one, but uh, it was really cold wherever we have been. And this, now we have heat, and what do we do? We don't like the noise. <laughs> Where was I as the trained professional that I am? The, one of the purposes, obviously, is the mercy giving time for repentance. The other is that the, it reveals the minds of the wicked. They think that they can be evil. They can be evil without judgment, that they can escape judgment, because God will not in sin. Sin will not be ended. 
And there's two reasons they say that God will not end sin. Do you remember what those two reasons are? They say that he won't do it because, and I'm going to start getting rid of things now, off the board, so that I can put new things on. They say that he will not end sin because he is not able to end sin. Or they will say that he is not willing to end sin. Both of those are in the wicked column. That's why I ask people all the time, when they say to me, for example, back to the infants, when they say to me that God will not, uh, or infants will, will go into perdition, into the lake of fire, and I ask them, is it because God is not willing to save infants, or he is not able to save infants? Which is your position? And they are trapped. Most will say he's not willing to save in- infants. That's a very bad place to be, because what have you now said about him? You're attacking his character. So keep in mind that that not able, not willing comes up a lot, and that's why I put it on the board. They will say, to, they will say that as soon as this departure revealed that there are many wicked people that think that they will be evil forever, and they will never be judged because God can't do it or won't do it. Either one of them is wicked. Um, and by the way, this all, they also have a concept that somehow the omniscience of Christ is, is disabled. It can be disabled. He can switch off his omniscience. If he switches, or if God switches off his omniscience, then he is not able to judge sin, right? Because he doesn't have all the evidence. And so anytime you begin, Christ is clearly identified as the judge of sin of all man. All judgment is given to Christ, John 5. Um, if you say that he can't do he, he loses his omniscience at any time, then you have rendered him unable to be the judge. And many, I, I can't come up with a movie about Christ that doesn't have his omniscience taken from him or his omnipresence. Pick an omni. You take any of those omnis out, you have destroyed his ability to be judge. Does that make sense? Hope it does. So I want you to see how prevalent that kind of thinking is in the contemporary church today. Certainly that way in the contemporary uh, church media, uh, if you're, there's such a thing. The, those who are producing the movies about Christ rarely get his godhood correct. In fact, I don't think I've ever seen it done right. I've stopped watching the movie, so it's possible somebody's done it. But I haven't seen it. The TV show, the, uh, the movies, all of these things... Almost all of them are, are, okay, what's the word I'm looking for? Starts with the B. Blasphemous, that's it. And it's common to hear that, that, and see depicted that Christ is not omniscient God. And as we know, that's modernistic theology. It has creeped into the contemporary church because people like it. It's not true. And, and this is the underlying issue, by the way, of these three parables in Matthew. There are those when omnipresent Christ, so think about that. He's omnipresent. He can't be anything but omnipresent. He's always omnipresent. But there are those that when they think omnipresent Christ isn't around. Does that make sense? That's logically ridiculous. Do you see that? But that's what they say and that's what they think. When omnipresent Christ is detached, he's not here. 
He's not watching. That's impossible. But that's what they think. And when they think that that's the condition, then what will they do? They will seek to take advantage. Again, impossible. Doesn't stop them. It's logically ridiculous, but this is it. It's a blindness. It's a darkness. Uh, again, they start thinking that God won't or he, or, or he can't. Anyway, when they think that Christ is not around, that they can't, that he's not watching me, then they beat and kill. That's the first parable, right? They starve others. They hoard the food. They hide and they bury the food. And they do it with premeditation. I erased, pre, erased premeditation. I didn't want to do that. It's a premeditated act. It's exactly what that guy says in Matthew. Oh, he's delaying his coming. This is an opportunity for me to kill people. And they actively labor to kill as many as they can. And that, by the way, is as God defines kill. And these are those, by the way, the ones who kill, who will not feed as they are instructed. They also have no oil. They have a lamp, but they have no oil. And then they also bury their talent. And back to the lamp and no oil. If you have a lamp and you have no oil, as you read, uh, if you were here last week and we read the, the parable, you also recognized, or you did, I hope, last week, that the people that are in that condition, a lamp and no oil, they are easily exposed as having no understanding of where the oil comes from. And that's done in that parable. They don't know where the oil comes from. They don't know who gives the oil. And they don't know that the oil can't be bought has to be given. It's priceless. And so that's easily exposed. And that was the case in that parable. Remember, because the, they said, give us some of your oil. They don't realize that I can't give you my oil and you can't give me yours. If you have the oil, it's not transferable. If you think your children are going to be saved because you're saved, not going to happen. Unless they're below the age of accountability. They're free will. That you can't give them salvation. Only Christ gives them salvation. It isn't a transferable uh, product. It certainly can't be bought. It's infinitely valuable. It's the blood of Christ. And they're told, go get your own oil. Go to the people who sell oil. And they did it. Anyone that knew what oil is in that parable would never have gone to go buy it. You can't buy it. And there's no one that can sell it. So those people that don't have any oil are easily exposed and easily uh, uh, recognized as people that have no idea what the oil is or who the oil is. And they're also the ones that bury the talent of gold. So that's what we're addressing in these three parables again. And all of those, all of these, burying the food, not uh, taking a lamp with no oil, and burying the talent, all of those are premeditated, thoughtful, willful acts. They're decisions, and they have no excuse for those decisions. There is no excuse for beating and killing people and not feeding them, taking a lamp with no oil, and burying the talent of gold. There is no excuse. Don't put yourself in a position of reading those parables and thinking that, well, yeah, this guy that only got one talent, he got, that's not fair. God's not fair. What have you done? 
That's bad, isn't it? Recognize it. You've said that God is sinful when you say God's not. If you have any sympathy for the one with no talent, or the ones with no oil, or the ones that beat the servants, then you have missed the understanding. Those are premeditated acts. Did you see the premeditation? I'll point it out in case you didn't. The evil slave says in his heart, Christ is delaying his coming. So now I can go kill people. That isn't a whim. That's a premeditated decision. And by the way, he he doesn't say that Christ is not going to come or that Christ won't come. He says Christ is delaying his coming. I got time to kill people. Who does that? Is that a... What what, what kind of person does that, by the way, is why so many see the cut in two and the Antichrist motive, right? The evil slave says in his heart, Christ is delaying his his coming. He takes it as an opportunity to kill for a season. What does that mean? Why does God say that? Because he knows that the season will end, doesn't he? And the five wicked virgins, they take a lamp and then they willfully and knowingly, premeditatedly take no oil. And the third slave got his talent and knew immediately that he was going to bury it. Because he knew that it would save people. And he wanted none to be saved. And so he uh, buries the gold and he has a prepared excuse. Well thought through, by the way. He brings up the confession of Adam when he does it. And, and notice that that at least of those three groups, the virgins the uh, and the wicked uh, beating slave and the burying wicked slave, lazy slave, at least two of those uh, knew that God was going to come back. They were positive of it. And I've always found that interesting. And what I mean by that is that the evil slave that starves and kills his fellow servant says he's delaying again. He's going to come. He's just delaying. I know he's coming. I'm going to kill people knowing he's coming. That's a fascinating place to be, isn't it? found that interesting every time I've read it. He does not say my master won't return. Or he also doesn't say that my master doesn't exist. You notice that? He's fully aware that the master, that God exists, that Christ exists, that Christ is God. Fully aware. Knows everything there is to know. But instead of feeding, instead of taking the truth of Christ, he nonetheless kills. By the way, that is the the question of Mark from Texas a couple weeks back. I, I hope you were here for that. He uh, wrote a, a very, very thoughtful letter to us uh, where he wants to know what is the origin of Christ is not God. Where did that come from? It, it is what it's, it, it has a, the, the complement of not able, not willing is God isn't or Christ isn't. Make a box out of those. So the people that say God is not able or God is not willing will ultimately be simpatico or they will find their friends among the crowd that say that God isn't or Christ isn't. God isn't, as you know, the, is the is monism, is atheism. There is no God. God does not exist. Christ isn't is a little bit different than that. That, that is, Christ isn't God. So you have not able, not willing, God isn't, Christ isn't. And Mark from Texas wanted to know what is the origin of Christ isn't. 
Where did that come from? This is your evolutionary philosophy, your monism. This is your modernism. Christ isn't as modernism. And the five foolish virgins, uh, they say, Lord, Lord, open to us at the very end of that parable. The wicked third slave says, Lord, I know you to be the author of evil. And the first slave says, my master is delayed. What is that? Not able, not willing, God isn't, Christ isn't. Find your category. I think the evidence demonstrates that they all had some concept of the existence of God. They knew he was the creator. Uh, if you're going to find someone that says that Christ was not God and that Christ did not exist, I think the only uh, one that that case can be made for are the five foolish virgins. So they're a little bit different in my view. I'll get to that in a minute. See, they knew that God existed and that he had given them instructions and what they were supposed to do, but they also knew that they had the capacity and the capability to rebel against that, rebel against God and reject his instructions, disobey his order, refuse his order, and suppress the truth, his truth. They had that capacity. They deliberately beat instead of feeding, and they deliberately take no oil, and they deliberately bury the gold, right? So the issue then is that they all choose an evil path. And what's their plan? If you're going to choose an evil path, do you you just do it to be evil or what? Do you have a plan? I suggest that they had a plan. They had an expectation. They thought that even though they were evil, nonetheless, they would be invited into the wedding feast. Not able, not willing to stop me. I get invited. Universalism. Anna, she's not here, she's hiding. I suspect that Anna's motivation for having a child is so that she could miss all the rest of my lectures. But she found something on the internet today that she sent me. Um, that is exactly this, that there will be no judgment. There's no judgment. That is, God isn't willing or not able or not willing. So they believe that God won't and God can't. So let me change that. That's a better way to put it, I think. I want you to, I keep repeating it today because I want you to recognize it if you ever say it. And know what what side of the argument you're now on. Why would they expect to be invited when they hold this position or that position? These people don't hold this position because they don't think there is anything. There's just cessation. There is no existence at all. And there's no free will, and therefore there's no accountability. There's just nothingness. That's their view. These people have a more of a nuanced, complicated view. And that's what you're reading about in Matthew here. Okay? There is this element of suddenness or surprise that these folks that think this way um, are unaware that they're not going to be accepted. They were not watching. They're not prepared. They're not ready. You see Christ say, watch therefore all the time in this in these parables, there's a, 
a preparation element. You've got to know what's going to happen. The others will not know. They don't know. They're absolutely as blind as they can be. The five foolish virgins take no oil, and that makes them different, in my opinion. As I said a few seconds ago, I think they are the modernists. They are the Christ-less, the Christ-isn'ts, if you will. They're pretending to be something they know they're not. They know they don't believe this. That's why they don't take the oil. Why wouldn't they take the oil? They don't think they need the oil. The oil doesn't have any value. Why don't they want light? They don't think there is any light. They think everybody's in darkness. All there is is nothingness. And yet, they have a role, if you will, in the wedding ceremony. They're in the church system. They're religious people. They are Christless. They are saying Christ isn't. Pretending to be something they know they're not. And the wicked slaves, and that, by the way, makes them more different than the others. They are, they have a, uh, own special category. They're part of the threefold nature here, but they're unique in this sense. The wicked slaves, the first parable, wicked slave, the third parable, wicked slave, uh, one wants to rule immediately and does so with force. The other wishes that, that none be saved and attempts to sabotage the truth of the deity and the goodness of of Christ. But the five virgins without oil, they have a different plan entirely, and God calls them what, Revelation 3.16? Vomit. So you have food, oil, gold. Is it food equals? Oil equals gold, or is it food plus oil plus gold equals X? I think the fact that the virgins are different means that it's plus and not equal. That helps you understand the talents, right? And one final consideration before we head off to Jeremiah 13, in case you thought I wasn't good to get there. Did the five foolish virgins find someone who sold them counterfeit oil? I asked this last week in a different way. They were told by the five wise virgins, go buy some oil. And they went, which again exposes them as somebody who has no idea what oil is, how it works. They have no idea of the salvation of Christ, the plan of redemption. They have no concept. They think they can earn or buy their oil. You can't. What are you, an idiot? Yes, But they're really blind darkness. So they go off to get their oil or pretend. And did they find somebody, did they find somebody willing to sell them a counterfeit? Were they going to take a counterfeit and bring it to the door and say, we've got oil? By the way, did the counterfeit work? Did it, the lamp light? And Christ says to them, I don't know you. Okay, so with that, uh, uh, clearly somebody sold them something or they had something that was worthless, that was profitable for nothing. So let's now go to Jeremiah really fast. Got to hurry. Jeremiah 13. And again, I have to give uh, Bill the cow credit for pushing me in this direction. I'm very thankful for 
those of you who get way ahead of me, it's good. I know you think that I think of everything. Okay, you don't think that at all? But uh, anyway, let's read uh, Jeremiah 13, 1 through 11 really fast again. Thus said the Lord to me. Now, Jeremiah is going to perform the two parables of, par- of uh, or he's going to go in front of Israel with these two parables, the parable of the linen sash and the parable of the wine jars, right? Thus the Lord said to me, so Jeremiah now has a role here, go and buy yourself a linen sash and put it around your waist. So he's going to put it around his waist. Now, a lot of disagreement here. and We'll get to that in a minute. I'm going to present the, the side that I think is the most correct. I hope you'll understand why I do so. But do not put it in water. So go buy a linen sash, but whatever you do, don't put it in water. And so I got a sash according to the word of the, of the Lord and put it around my waist. Now the word of the Lord came to me a second time. Take the sash that you acquired, which is around your waist, and arise, go to the Euphrates. Now I said last week that I'm convinced this is Babylon. Some people say it's five miles away. Jeremiah had to go just a short distance so the nation of Israel could see him. I say no. He actually went to Babylon. What does that mean? He departed. That's why I say that. Anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself. And hide it there in a hole in a rock. So he goes and finds a cave and buries it in a cave. That's interesting to me. So I went and hid it by the Euphrates as the Lord commanded me. Now it came to pass after many days, a long delay. Arise, the Lord said to me, Arise, go to the Euphrates and take from there the sash which I commanded you to hide there. Then I went to the Euphrates and dug and I took the sash from the place where I'd hidden it and there was the sash ruined. It was profitable for nothing. Just like the Counterfeit oil. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord, In this manner I will ruin the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem, this evil people who refuse to hear my words, who follow the dictates of their hearts and walk after other gods to serve them and worship them, shall be just like this sash which is profitable for nothing. For as the sash clings to the waist of man, so I have caused the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah to cling to me, says the Lord, that they may become my people for renown, for praise, and for glory. But they would not hear. So this is our second time through this. I just wanted to read it again because I think it's uh, so uh, important to get it. Let's put what's... The elements here. So you see those elements as fast as I can do. I promise pumpkin bread is just around the corner. Okay. One, it's a linen sash. It's linen. It's beautiful. The sash. And it's hidden. Just like that talent of gold, right? Two, uh, it becomes profitable for nothing. Ruined. I'll go over here. Three, um, 
he, he's to buy it. Buy the sash. It's bought. Now, that's interesting. That's Old King James, by the way, and I think that is correct. Oh, I already put I, four. It's beautiful right here. Uh, there's a priesthood application to it. It's a priest sash. Don't put it in water. Whatever you do, no water. Not allowed to put it in any water. And then the other, of course, number seven, is this long delay departure that is in this. Okay? Those are the highlights in my view. Now, I recognize the Israelology of all of this. It's clear. The Israelology, what I mean by that, this is an Israel-focused parable. And it's called the parable of the ruined linen sash. The application is to the nation of Israel primarily. God says directly that in the manner that the linen sash was ruined, so shall the evil people. That's important. Once again, I've got great evil here, just as I have in this other parable. I've got evil people in food, evil people in oil, evil people in the talent. I've got evil people in Israel with regard to the sash. So, he so shall the evil of people of Israel be ruined. Those who refuse to hear his words shall be just as this ruined, filthy sash, profitable for nothing, rotted. And, and that can't be set aside. Jeremiah was warning Israel that they were to suffer the consequences of their evil. Okay, having said that, especially uh, with the subsequent parable of the wine jugs, which is a John 2 compliment. I'm going to look at what happened in John 2 with the wine and the jugs. I'm going to look at what happens here with the wine and the jugs. But put the Old Testament and the New Testament together to get the full understanding of what God's saying. It's also clear to me that this sash should be included uh, alongside those parables in Matthew 24, 45 through 25, 30. Who wrote both of them? And God wrote both of them. And it's clear to me that Israel is very much like this third slave here that hid the talent. The third slave who buries the gold talent. At least, if you want to select somebody out of Israel at the time that Christ gave uh, that parable, you can look at the Pharisees or the brood of vipers. They could easily be the third slave, could they not? They're arguing the very argument that Satan argues. Word for word, they argue what Satan says to Christ. So that would be their father, right? Christ says, your father uh, Satan, the author of lies, which is the same thing as calling Satan what? If he's the father of lies, what is he also? The father of? Because if he isn't the... How can you be the father of lies and only be the father of lies? What else must you be the father of? If you are the father of lies, then what's the implication of that? Yeah, but... Father is is the origin. Right? Think about that. If I am the origin of lies, if I have the first lie, then what have I become by default? Okay. 
So why would anybody say, when the Bible is clear and obvious, why would anybody stand behind a pulpit and say, when Christ identifies Satan as the father, the origin of lies, the one that said the first lie, why would anybody say that Christ is the origin of sin? They do. They did it today. Why? What would make somebody do that? What's the motive? There's a motive. There's always a motive. Follow the motive. Isn't that the uh, the old adage? Not quite. So, Israel has the same characteristics as that third slave. The same arguments, the Pharisees at least, the brood of vipers. So the buried sash, the, the question becomes then, does the buried sash and the buried talent have the same meaning? So if I figure out what the sash means, can I then now understand what the talent means? At least make progress. So we're going to see if we can figure out the meaning of the beautiful linen priestly sash today. And if we have done that correctly, do we now, have we now solved the meaning of at least one third of this equation? Notice that the sash was to be worn around the waist. And again, some commentators suggested it's an undergarment. And it's not visible. I don't think so. The whole point of it is to be visible. So I think it is to be worn around the waist, tied around the waist. Um, The Old Testament says loins. I'm sorry, not the Old Testament. The Old King James says loins. I think that's absolutely correct. Loins is an important word here. And we know it's a symbol. Jeremiah is demonstrating something to the nation that has that has become pagan. The nation has become pagan, and so the response that God has is take a sash and tie it around your loins tightly. And they would see this beautiful garment. And where is the beautiful garment going to go? It's going to be taken to Babylon. So I could easily call it a beautiful garment in Babylon, can't I? Now I'm back to Achan, aren't I? A buried, beautiful garment that has a Babylonian context in both Joshua 7 and Jeremiah 13. And so they would know that, wouldn't they? And this beautiful Babylonian garment, soon to be Babylonian, buried in Babylon, would become filthy over time. And they would need to see Jeremiah leave and journey to Babylon. That's a long way. And as you know, there is a relationship between the Babylonian uh, rulership and Jeremiah. And everyone wanted to know how and when did it happen. I'll propose next week that this is where and when it happened. He went there. It's important that he have a Babylonian beautiful sash. He's going. He's departing. While Jeremiah is gone, what do you think happens to the people of Israel? What do they do? The prophet Jeremiah is gone. What did he do? Did they like him much? What did he say to them every single day? You're evil. He's gone. Do you think they became less evil? Or did they say, hey, Jeremiah's gone. Let's kill somebody. And obviously, I believe that Jeremiah actually made that long journey so that I had the departed delay element again. And I think that Jeremiah did it twice. Oh, that's a shock. I have two Jeremiah comings. 
And he did it once to bury the sash and once to recover the sash. Now, the key has to be in the water. Wear the sash, allow the nation of Israel to see it become filthy while you're wearing it. Do not, do not, do not put it in water. Do not wash the sash. And eventually, you're going to bury this sash. And what will happen to the sash? It will, once it's buried, it will go into corruption. It will rot, won't it? What happens to you when you're buried? You go into corruption and you rot. A filthy sash that becomes rotten, that becomes ruined, but is dug up. Lots of things there that we got to consider. The sash is a complex symbol, make no mistake. But why did God instruct Jeremiah to never let it touch water? That's very important. What does the water represent? If you're going to solve it, you got to have the right meaning of the word water. Where's water? Right there. Got to know this. You get the wrong water, you're in trouble. What is the symbol as water? Well, water is judgment. We know that because I have the judgment, the Noadic flood. I have the Red Sea. I have the Jordan River, which is death and judgment from the city of Adam that descends into the Dead Sea. So I have all of this judgment with water. I have the axe head of Elisha, right? Float the axe head up in the, out of the Jordan River of death and judgment. Obviously, Christ put himself into the Jordan River specifically to teach us that he will raise us up from death. And our life, our souls are the axe heads. Borrowed, this precious borrowed will come up out of death. If you throw the branch in, if Christ goes in, salvation is a precious axe head that cannot be purchased. Anyway, you know all of that. But in the context that's provided with the sash around the waist, it can't be judgment. There is a washing. Don't wash it. And there's an implied cleansing. That's Ephesians 5.26. I won't read it today. I'll read it next week. It's the washing of the word. Ephesians 6.14 says there's a girding with truth. Water and girding. Washing with the word and girding with the truth. With the sash around your waist. Truth. Don't wash it with the word. So I gave you the truth and you didn't keep it clean. Christ is the word. Christ is the truth. If you are given a beautiful sash, but it's not washed with Jesus Christ, it will become filthy and useless and ruined. If you have the wrong doctrine of Christ, you will have a filthy sash that is useless. It will become filth, it will become rotten, ruined, corrupt, buried, dead. And Israel became as the sash because they never heard God. They refused to hear him. They suppressed his truth. They refused to hear the truth of Christ. They suppressed the truth of Christ. They had no truth of Christ. They didn't even know what it was after a while. And that hopefully clears things up a bit. Next week, we'll keep going. More to come.